This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 208, Mike Melanson on rock climbing, sport technical climbing, also on how to promote organizations that promote caring for nature. Hi, friends. Happy Monday to you. Kurt here. Hey, so it's Monday for you, but it is Saturday evening for me, and I just got back from an epic mountain biking ride with some buddies. It was such a fun time. We did Mount Falcon and Lair of the Bear Loop, which is about a 20-mile ride, nearly 4,000 vertical feet, amazing trail, really fun time, but I got to tell you, man, it kicked my butt. What a tough ride that was, but how much fun. I, I'm i all excited because I just got back from another adventure, and you know, anytime we get out in nature, we work hard, we breathe hard, we fill our bodies, and uh, we get to see the beauty all around us and have a ton of fun. How does it get any better than that? That's why we have the Adventure Sports Podcast, because we love to share that with you guys, hope that you're sharing that with others, and you know... Have fun. Take time to enjoy nature and to kind of recenter and connect and get that great exercise. Glad you're listening today. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today I have guest Mike Melanson with us, and Mike is a climber, so we're going to spend quite a bit of time today talking about his love for the outdoors and climbing, but Mike also works with On-Site Public Affairs. Their tagline is, we deliver without being showy, and they do all sorts of things to encourage positive change related to the outdoors, and I'll let Mike explain what that's all about. But first, I'd like to give you a little background for Mike. Mike grew up in Ohio. In 1991, he moved to Colorado. Prior to that, he was a ski instructor in New Mexico. He worked with scouting, and he had a summer job at Philmont. Many of you will know what Philmont is in New Mexico. He took up sport climbing and bouldering early in life and has been doing that for a long, long time. And so we're really excited to have Mike here to talk to us about sport climbing and about the outdoors and how important the outdoors is for the greater good of our society. So, Mike, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, Mike, you told me so much before we uh, hit record here, and I hate to ask you to repeat it all, but I hopefully we'll be able to capture the good stuff that you already told me. So first, let's go back to climbing a little bit. Tell us how you got started in climbing. Well, I was, um, I was in the scouts when I was a kid and, um, uh, we were on a trip, uh, on a camping trip where we took a hike through, um, a place called Clifton Gorge. Uh, it was near Yellow Springs, Ohio. It's where Antioch college is. And when we were hiking through the gorge, um, there were a lot of climbers out that day. It was, um, a late fall day. I remember it being fairly warm, but the leaves were, were for the most part off the trees. And, um, and, uh, you know, basically there was a couple of climbers and they offered us if any of us wanted to jump on their rope and try it out. And, and I did. And, and I, you know, immediately loved it. I was the kid in the troop who was always up in the trees and always scrambling around on, on 
rocks, but this is the first time I actually, you know, got significantly off the ground. And, um, and so the, um, the leader of our troop, the senior patrol leader of our troop, he was about five years older than me. He was 16 years old. I was 11. Uh, so he, uh, basically found REI and, um, and bought a rope and some carabiners and some, you know, locking carabiners and such. And then we went down to the, uh, Dayton, Ohio library and Xeroxed, um, some, uh, you know, some sort of guidebook that we had found there, um, and basically how to do a, a webbing harness, you know, so we tied these webbing harnesses with a water knot and, um, we essentially started going out to Clifton Gorge on our own and setting up the top rope and, um, you know, just climbing in sneakers and, and in a webbing harness and, you know, no chalk, uh, no, no sticky rubber. Uh, it was a, you know, it was a great start to climbing and I had the bug for the, you know, the rest of my life basically. <laughs> That's wonderful. You know, I like it that you said that you got on the rope and that was the first time you got very high off the ground. We visited with Jerry Roach a while back and his first climbing was with a, a claw hammer and a clothesline on the <laughs> on the flat irons in Boulder. Yeah. So I'm glad you had the proper rope at least. That's cool. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, we were definitely safe. <laughs> Well, let's let's talk a little bit about safety because a lot of people that are listening right now have never climbed before. But I know that if they're like me, it sounds like like you, they have that desire to scramble up stuff, and you can easily get yourself into a bind with a difficult time getting back down again. So, what would you say about people that are interested in climbing? What should they do to do it safely? Well, you know, I I was lucky because um, you know obviously. You know, we went and, you know, I was in the scouts. And so, you know, there, there were certain, um, there, there wasn't a whole lot of climbing at the time in scouts. Very, just a few years after that, it really kind of took off and there were more organized programs. Uh, but, you know, there are resources that are out there. Yeah, but with today's world, you know, you got the climbing gyms and, you know, obviously that's a great place to start. But I would almost recommend, you know, hiring a guide or, or finding someone who is a climber, because I think that's kind of the old, you know, that that's how it was done for so many years before there were ever, um, uh, you know, climbing gyms. And I think that notion of passing it on, uh, you know, the love of the sport and, and taking it so seriously because you do have someone's life in your hands. You know, I was very fortunate when I first moved to Colorado that there were two older gentlemen out of Boulder um, you know, I met, it was basically a friend of mine was the coworker of one of those guys' wife. And so, you know, we got hooked up and, you know, because they, they just got into the conversation of climbing and we got introduced. And so I started going with these guys in my early twenties up to El Dorado and, you know, they taught me how to, to place protection and, you know, do those multi-pitch routes. And it was just such a great, uh, learning experience for me to have, um, those mentors. And, you know, I had, you know, for years, you know, worked with them and took, you know, big climbing trips with them. And, and, um, I just think that if you can, if you can find that person and be able to do it that way, um, it, it's just, it's just a richer experience. Um, but obviously that's hard to find and you may just have to go to a climbing gym and I think that's perfectly fine too. And, you know, they can give you instruction and, and get you started off on the right foot. Mm, yeah. Good advice. So, you mentioned El Dorado Canyon. Is that one of your favorite places to climb? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I think it is just because, um, as a you know kid from Ohio, who then when early on when he 
was getting into climbing. You know, El Dorado was, you know, in the 80s, it was just definitely a hot spot. Obviously, Yosemite, you know, so it's kind of, there, there were kind of two places. It was, it was El Dorado and Yosemite that you always would hear about um, and people would discuss. And so I think when I, you know, finally was able to go there and climb, you know, that was a big deal. Um, uh, and, and then I, I think, you know, having such a, having such, you know, large roots, multi, you know, long multi-pitch roots, um, you know, it's fantastic rock, you know, having some, a place like that so close to an, an urban area, I think also makes it, um, you know, pretty special too. Yeah, no doubt. So El Dorado is a state park that's south of Boulder, Colorado, a little bit. Describe what it looks like for our listeners. You, you, what's interesting about it is when you think of the flat irons and how they're all uh, kind of on an angle, you know, this is a canyon that cuts through the flat irons. And so you still have those angles, um, but you're on the backside of them to, to a large degree. So a lot of these roots can be overhanging roots, uh, but also on the side where the, the stream had you know, push through and probably some glaciers as well. You've got some really nice vertical climbs, um, several towers, the you know, Bastille Tower and, uh, and um, you know, T1 and T2 on the other side, um, you know, just kind of rise up right there out of the creek, you know, right where the, the plains meet the mountains, and it's pretty dramatic. Very you know what's neat about that geologically is that, you know, there was an ocean there, and – Literally, El Dorado is is what was once the shore of the ocean, right. you know. And to be standing there, and in, in the contrast between the Great Plains in front of you, which go on for nearly a thousand miles, and then the Rocky Mountain West that's behind you that goes on for thousands of miles, you know, it's kind of neat that you're you're yeah. right smack dab where everything changes. Yeah, no, that's what's so great is always, you know, I don't, you know, I don't recall exactly what point when you're doing those routes, but at the point where you're up in a belay and you can finally look out over the foothills and see the Indian peaks and, um, the continental divide there. And that's, you know, that's so amazing. Such great views there. Oh yeah. And for the listeners who don't know, Indian peaks wilderness is a wilderness that's pretty close in the front range of Colorado. And there are a lot of mountains there that are above 13,000 feet and even more that are above 12,000 feet, and they're pretty precipitous. You know, the glaciers really carved them, so it's a beautiful backdrop for climbing, just amazing. So, Mike, why climb? If people are interested in this, why would you, you know, why would you say, yeah, it's worth it, do it? I think the the satisfaction, the, you know, the, the challenge of it, and then when you overcome the challenge, you know, the satisfaction of it is, is like no other sport. Um, you know, I think whether you're doing alpine, um, you know, when I was a kid, I always thought that, okay, I want to learn to rock climb because I want to go climb the big mountains of the world. And I definitely love doing alpine. Um, but, but, you know, actual technical rock climbing is truly where my heart is at because when you're pushing your ability to, um, you know, climb something that's, that's at or even slightly above your ability level and, and you have to keep the focus of the head and, and pay attention to, um, you know, your body position. Um, and, you know, so often, you know, what's great about this, this sport as well is that if you, if you fail, you, it's amazing how you think that you're failing because you're fatigued and almost always it's not really about being tired out, but just figuring out what the moves are and doing the moves in an efficient way. And so even though you, you, you climb to failure, 
Um, you, you get right back on there after a few minutes rest and you just go a little bit further and you think, wow, okay, I didn't think I could do that. And then you fail again and, and you rest for a bit and then you get back on and eventually you get, you get through the problem. And I think that's the, the reward that you get from that, the perseverance and, and keep trying and, you know, keep solving the puzzle and figuring out, you know, there's, there's a way to do this and, and yeah, maybe I have to get stronger, but for the most part, it's actually just unlocking the puzzle. And when you do unlock that, it's, you know, it's, a, it's very rewarding. That's kind of neat. You know, I think a lot of people think of climbing as a muscle game, but I like your description because the reality is it, it has an awful lot to do with technique, strategy, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think that's exactly right. When I, you know, I, I think even when I was a younger climber, I knew that climbing was a lot of a mental game. But when you hit, when you just said about strategy, you know, that was something that I learned later in life as a climber to actually start employing certain strategies, um, you know, both from a breathing technique perspective, finding places where you can get sneak rests in, you know, that sort of thing. Um, you know, it's interesting as the older I got, the more I would employ those strategies. And, and so even though you may not be Maybe getting older and not climbing at the level you used to climb, you know, you actually still can maintain it because uh, you're climbing smarter. So how has climbing as a sport changed since you started climbing back in Ohio? That was some time ago. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Because, um, yeah, that was maybe 81 or 82. You know, I think, um, I, I think you know, it's, it's changed dra- drastically because I think both the introduction, you know, I guess about, it was at 89, I think was the first indoor climbing gym. And, you know, probably around the same time were when bolts were being introduced as well. Um, you know, to, just to watch the whole sport climbing phase uh, take off at the same time that I was, you know, being, you know, the, the young climber um, was kind of was definitely really neat to be a part of and watch. And, you know, and I was never, um, you know, never at the, the top of the, the climbing elite by any means. But I, but I was with a lot of those folks, um, you know, here in Colorado, like Kurt Smith and Mike Pont and Jonathan Houck and, um, you know, different people like that, that, you know, you just kind of cross paths with. And, and it was, it was really neat because it was still, you know, the, well, and then also the contrast to that is the, the two older guys that I was climbing with, you know, on the weekends at El Dorado, um, you know, they just did not understand, you know, they, the whole notion of sport climbing was just so strange to them. And particularly one of them, you know, he didn't even understand. You know, he just, he just refused to climb in a gym. At least the other of those two, yeah, he'd be willing. He understood that if you go climb in a gym, it would help you climb better outdoors. But I remember the one time when I uh, went, went to the gym with the, the other fella, you know, a, a, a hold spun on him and, and he fell. And I think that was just so shocking to him. Uh, because the you know he grew up in an era where the rule was you never fall. Um, you know the the equipment is there to catch you if an accident happens. Uh, but this notion that you um, actually become a better climber through falling uh, was just something that he found uh, so strange, and I, I don't think it ever ever came to accept. Um, but um, but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to watch the gym, the whole you know indoor climbing gym take off and. You kind of think of Paradise Rock Gym, which was the first indoor rock gym, you know, here in Colorado. And I, I think about what that gym looked like, uh, you know, there in the early 90s versus now we have movement and earth tracks and, you know, these incredible facilities. Um, 
you know, you know, completely different than what Paradise was. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's kind of fun to watch all that change. Oh yeah. Well, a lot of our listeners are climbers, and they're they're going to know some of this. But for the ones who have never climbed, they've never been to a wall, they've never held a rope. Let's talk about some of the basics just so they kind of get a feel for what this is about. First, let's talk about ropes. And one of the reasons is I don't want someone to go grab a rope out of the barn and start climbing with it, <laughs> right? <laughs> so tell us what makes a climbing rope special. And then if you would, tell us the difference between static and dynamic and why that matters. Sure. Yeah, well, um, so uh, you, you, well, you hit the head, nail on the head. I mean, you, know, you, you want a dynamic rope. You want a rope that stretches uh, because when – when you fall, um, you don't want those the forces of your fall uh, to uh, interact negatively on your body. And if you have a static rope or a, a rope that doesn't stretch or have any elasticity to it, um, you know, as soon as that as soon as that rope goes tight, all those forces go right into your body, and it's going to be very jarring. Um, you know, additionally, you run the risk of the rope uh, breaking as well. You know, whereas with a, a, a climbing rope which are basically a, a, what they call a kern mantle rope. And the kern is essentially these nylon fibers uh, woven inside, and that's where the stretch is. And then you have the mantle or the sheath, um, which is, is a, you know, also nylon fiber but, but more um, uh, resistant to wear and, and water and that sort of thing to protect uh, the inside of the rope. So, you know, all, every rope, every rope company puts out different ropes. They have different diameters. Um, you know, later again, when I was younger, the, the standard was kind of a 10 or 10 and a half millimeter rope. You know, now you're starting to see, uh, significantly narrower ropes because people are trying to go lighter when they're, they're when they're doing harder, uh, sport climbs. So now you have nine mil ropes that, um, you know, are, are standard for people to use, um, you know, so those are kind of, you know, there's a lot of different price points on those ropes. So you just got to, you know, go to a climbing shop and, you know, talk to someone and kind of feel the rope and see what you like. Uh, different people like, you know, more supple ropes. Some people like stiffer ropes, um, and they're all woven to be slightly different. Uh, but still the bottom line is they, even though there might be some variances, they all have that elasticity that allow for stretch when you fall. You know, I'm sure you're the same way, Mike, but I can go into a climbing shop like Bent Gate in Golden, and I start seeing all the different ropes, and I start getting excited, and yeah, just looking at it is fun for me. Yeah. Well, that's that's my thing. Yeah, it's, I, yeah, I think it's kind of a, it's a little weird because I think, yeah, you, you just want to touch it. You know, you <laughs> see these ropes hanging there, and you're like, you just want to feel. Uh, it's just – it's um, – just that that feel of that rope in your hands uh, is is funny, and I and it, again that's why I mentioned that you you event you, you learn to you'll find the rope that you like, and 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 it's 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 kind of a funny thing, but it's just uh, um, it's very very particular to the person. Yeah, no doubt. So, what about protection? What do we mean when we say protection? Well, you know that's um, you know that can be anchors that would be at the end of a route. Or from the beginning to the end of the route. Well, and also you could potentially have an anchor at the beginning of the route, and I'll explain that as well. But um, but in between those anchors, uh, you will have individual pieces of protection that um, have gone through you know a long history. From um, you know when you think back to you know some people would actually just pound pieces of wood into in between cracks and in between rocks and 
you know, throw the rope around it or a sling around it. Um, but then, you know, pitons, little pieces of metal that would be pounded into the crack. Uh, then we moved into what was uh, an era of, of what they call clean pro. And what this would mean is it's, it's actually you carry it with you. You put it in, you take it out. Um, those are nuts or you know, the earlier form of that. Um, because they, they actually were very similar to the nuts that you would get at a hardware store, you know, when people were first experimenting with them. But essentially, they're pieces of metal, um, trapezoidal-shaped uh, pieces of metal that slide into the cracks and then have wire on them that you, you clip into. And so, um, and then now we have camming devices. You know, that's kind of the, the high end of where we are now. And um, these camming devices uh, actually, as you pull harder on them, they they expand inside the cracks. You know, so they you know if they're well placed and if the rock quality is of a good quality, um, you know they actually provide more protection, uh, you know, for than than what a, a a nut would be you know placed in there. Although of course, if you place a great nut, you know that's not going to go anywhere. As we always used to like to say, you could hang a Mack truck off of it, and it's not going to go anywhere. Um, and so, and then, and then also from the, in the sport climbing era, then, um, you know, uh, drilled in bolts. So these expansion bolts that then have hangers on them. And so then you'll clip into the hanger and then clip your, your rope into what's called a quick draw. And that's what connects your rope to the hanger. So the whole idea here is to have places to hook your rope. So if you take a fall, you don't hit the ground, you fall onto the rope. And I wanted to mention, you know, what you said about static ropes. If you fall onto a static rope, it's kind of like you fell onto the ground, but the ground is just wrapped around your harness, your waist or something, and that can do some serious damage, you know. Yeah, so absolutely. it's got to be dynamic. But I think you've done a great job of describing all the different types of protection that people can use. Bottom line is you're looking for ways to climb more safely. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for more than 20 years. Fall is here, but the mountains are still open for great hiking and climbing. Time to break out the hiking boots, rock climbing shoes, and tents. Gear materials and designs are more evolved than ever. From the latest ultralight gear to the tried-and-true classics, Bentgate has the premier brands for climbing, hiking, and camping essentials, including Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice on destinations, getting started, or on fine-tuning your quiver of gear? The Bentgate staff are all passionate adventurers who can give you the data and advice you need. Bentgate is also hosting numerous events and speakers this summer, so please check out their events page at bentgate.com for more information as well as to see their full product selection. Try Paleo Meals to Go freeze-dried backpacking meals. The wholesome gluten-free ingredients follow the Paleo diet, providing you with the lasting energy you require on your adventures. Visit www.paleomealstogo.com and enter TACK25 at checkout to save 25% off your order. What do you think? Is it a safe sport? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, my wife is a triathlete, and so she does a tremendous amount of road biking, and I just think that road biking is such a dangerous sport. I don't know why anybody does it. It's crazy, um, whereas rock climbing is absolutely safe. So what are the main dangers that you watch out for when you're climbing? 
Well, I think it's important. Um, you know, your belay is, is your belay person is so critical. You know, they really need to understand that, and they really need to. You you have to learn to be, um, you know, really communicative with your belay. So many accidents. You know, for instance, up in Clear Creek uh, that happened. Some of the worst accidents are due to a failure of communications between um, the climber and the belayer, where the belayer actually took the climber off belay when they thought they were still on and then they would lean back on the rope and, oh. and fall to the ground. And I think, so to me that, that connection is what's so important, especially in the sport climbing world, because, um, you know, you, with these expansion bolts and with the chain anchors, you, you really have, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very much a safe, um, sport. Obviously, you know, the, you know, the expansion bolts can rust out and there's, there's issues with that. And, you know, there's a big movement right now to make sure that we're inspecting and replacing all that gear because now we're getting to the 30 year point. And, you know, a lot of this gear when it was first done was maybe not as high quality of metal uh, that we have now. So there's a lot of bolt replacement that's going on, but still generally speaking, sport climbing is very, very safe unless there's a mistake um, between a, a, the climber and the blair. You know, sometimes it's also just an inattentiveness. Um, you know, they, they weren't able to, um, you know, lock off as quickly as they should. And so, you know, the climber's taken a, a bigger fall than maybe, you know, what they should. Um, but, um, you know, but generally speaking, you know, as long as, as long as that good communication is going on and the belayer is paying attention, um, you know, I, I think you, you know, you're just not going to run into any issues. Mm. You know, when I was a kid, college age kid i should say a friend and i were teaching some people how to sport repel and i was uh, at the bottom holding the rope i was the blayer i could add tension to the to the friction device that the that the repeller was using so that they couldn't slide faster than they should you know how it works mm-hmm. and there was a, a a gal at the top who was trying her first repel and she stood there not wanting to say no i'm not going to do this but not doing it for probably 30 minutes and i got a crick in my neck and uh, you know what happened. I looked away to, to stretch my neck, looked back up, and she had stepped off the cliff with no tension on the rope. Yeah. And so she went down about 10 feet before something stopped her. And, and of course, the rope had enough friction that it, it arrested her fall quite a bit. But she still hit a little bit hard. I felt so bad. But it just goes to show what you're saying. The belayer has to be spot on all the yep. time. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah, she was fine. She wasn't hurt. She walked away. But, man, did I feel bad about that one. So that, in a nutshell, is what sport climbing is about. Now, people can start on easier climbs, and then they can advance to extremely difficult climbs. Tell us a little bit about that rating system. So the rating system is you know varies all around the world. I mean, I, I couldn't even tell you how many different rating systems there are. You know, I have charts in all my books because I have done a little bit of climbing in Europe, and, and so I've had to, to – transfer the rating system but essentially it's um uh you know in in the united states it was a the dead the yosemite decimal system was what it was called and and it was from five zero to five ten and five was the class where um you know you in a, in a class four would be scrambling uh class five would then be where you need rope protection because if you were to fall there was a threat of serious injury Whereas class four is scrambling, but without serious injury. 
you know, then three is more of like a steep hill, two is a slightly steep hill, and one would be flat. Um, so anyway, that's where the class, that's where five comes in. But they did, they had a, the scale from zero to 10, with 10 being the hardest climbs. Well, then, as you can imagine, as people started to climb harder than the 10, you know, they realized, okay, we've got to keep moving this up. We can't just keep having a bunch of 10s just crammed in, you know, at the top. And so, you know, moved into, you know, 11, 12, and then that's even broken down into an A, B, C, D, or a plus or a minus, uh, depending, you know, um, you know, different places, you know, have, have different ways of doing it. And so now, um, you know, as I understand it, I guess uh, there's a, a Czech climber um, who I guess is on the verge of maybe doing the first 515D. Wow. And um, that would then be, that is where, that's the top end now uh, in our world. And then how that translates to the European scale, I, I don't remember because uh, I can't keep that stuff straight. Just so people kind of get a feel for it, most beginners could climb a 5.6 or a 5.7 with a rope on and have a lot of fun on that, I think. Yeah, probably so. When you see it at the gym, you know, that's usually where people are starting out. They can do that a few times and, and then, of course, they get tired and, even that becomes a challenge, but but yeah, I think the the average person with you know good fitness uh, you know can be right there at that level. So, what's it like to climb something more difficult, say a five ten or a five eleven even? Well, I think you know a lot of it depends on it's the it's both the size of the holds as well as the steepness of the holds. Maybe even factoring in the type of rock, um, you know. So, for instance, you you know for the most part, you'll you're not going to find uh, overhanging five tens. Um, you know, you can find those, those would just be large holds, you know, what we call buckets, you know, meaning that they're, they're, you know, really good grip, but because it's overhanging, that's what makes it hard. Mm. You know, when you're climbing on something more slabby, as soon as you break into the five ten level, you're probably getting into stuff that's a lot thinner. It's just the tips of your fingers, um, that you're holding on to. Um, and then obviously as you get harder and harder, it, it just, it just varies with, um, you know, you could be on a five twelve that's, you know, just, you know, has decent holds, but they're not buckets by any means. They're more like, um, you know, you're just, you're, you're pinching or side pulling, uh, but you're doing it in an overhanging position. And then that's what makes it, you know, at that more extreme level. And I think that's, you know, when you look at this, um, you know, I just recently saw this video, this route that, you know, this climber is working on in Europe that potentially could be the hardest climb in the world. And, you know, it's just amazing. He actually gets inverted and has to do this, um, you know, it's almost like a figure four with his feet, but not quite. It's almost like he's pinching with his feet. Um, it's just an absolutely amazing uh, uh, gymnastic feat. And he's doing it in an extremely overhanging position, um, you know, on just very difficult holds. How long does it take, Mike, to become proficient as a climber? Well, I think proficient, not that long. And especially if you're, you know, if you have, you know, kind of, I think, you know, obviously like with any sport, some people are more, you know, their body type is more inclined to it. And so I've seen, you know, it's amazing to watch some young climbers that just, um, you know, they have been climbing maybe six months, maybe a year, and they're climbing routes that I can only dream of climbing. And, you know, you watch, you watch those folks and you just, it's just, it's amazing. You know, it's just, it's so great to see how fast they excel. Um, you know, I think if you have a, you know, less of, you know, not 
quite as much of a gymnastic body type. Um, you know, it, it's going to take time. Um, it's going to take time for your your muscles to develop and you know develop that muscle memory. And and then of course you know it also it all goes to you know factoring in age and and the time you can dedicate to it as well and recovery. You know, and all all those sorts of things. Oh yeah. I want to mention too, Mike, I'm sure you can attest to this, but this is not a man's sport. This is a everybody sport. Women make some of the very best climbers. And there are a lot of ladies that are in the climbing community now. And many of them, it's a strength to weight ratio thing and a flexibility thing, I think. Mm -hmm. But man, they can really climb. Yeah, no, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, I think it is, um, um, you know, I think that is what is so great about this sport is, um, uh, you know, you hit the, the nail on the head with the strength to, to weight ratio because um, you don't, you know, I, I think, you know, a lot of women probably think you have to have tremendous strength and, and you really don't. Um, and I think that, you know, back to when you were saying how fast you excel, um, you know, this is a generalization, but it does seem to me anecdotally that women excel quicker in climbing uh, when they start than men do because men do just use their strength. And women very quickly start to learn technique and um, and how to, to use the strength that they have uh, to their betterment. And whereas men just power through uh, there at the, in the early, you know, I think when you're when you're first starting out. And um, and so it it is a you know it's a sport that's open to, I mean, I think all ages because you know that's the other thing too is kids are you know naturally inclined to climb and and um, and you know again because of their their muscle to mass ratio um you know may give them an advantage over uh you know someone who is older and stronger uh but but may have uh may may not be quite as lean yeah yeah i gotta mention my daughter here just because i'm so proud of her she decided that climbing was going to be her sport not too long ago and she's working 511s now Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, and she just absolutely loves it. And I think you couldn't hardly pick a healthier full-body activity than this, and also one that can connect you with the outdoors so well. So I'm just really glad that this became her thing. But that outdoor connection, that's where I'd like to go next. I mean, mm-hmm. you climb because you love to climb, but I'm sure you climb because you love the outdoors. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, there's it's, it's also it's very spiritual for me, and I, I don't know what it is is, you know, you know, I love mountain biking. Um, uh, you know, I, I took up kayaking for a while and, you know, thoroughly enjoyed kayaking and I've always been a big fan of skiing. Um, but I, I think the connection, the actual physical connection, um, you know, yes, you have equipment, but the equipment is not there to actually help you do the sport. It's there for when you fall. Um, you know, that to actually be physically in contact with the rock, um, you know, I, I think at least for me is, is incredibly energizing and, and, um, it just takes it to a little bit different level than, than what my other sport pursuits do. And, um, and then, you know, then there's just being in the outdoors because there's, you know, I think that's what's so great about bouldering is, you know, you've, you've got this, you, you know, you go out whether by yourself or with, uh, people and, you know, you just kind of hang out and, and enjoy the outdoors and, you know, try your problem and then rest and stare at it and think about it and, you know, sit there and enjoy the sun and the leaves and the grass and the trees and, and then, you know, jump back up and try it again. And, and then, you know, so I, I think that the enjoyment that you get to be able to, 
you know, somewhat meditate, I guess, you know, while you're actually, while you're still pursuing your sport, um, I think is what is the value of, of both climbing, but also in particular bouldering. You know, you mentioned before we started our interview here that getting kids involved in the outdoors was something that, you know, was really important to you. So how do you think getting kids into nature helps? To me, I just can't imagine what my life would have been like if I hadn't, you know, been in the Boy Scouts and been introduced to the things I was introduced to and in the outdoors and, you know, backpacking and biking and climbing and, and water sports and, you know, you name it. Um, and I think that's where, you know, I, I think that all of us, because of, you know, our evolution, you know, we were very much once upon a time connected to the outdoors. And so I think that has to still be very much a part of our DNA and something that we need. And so when you're restricted from that, um, you know, which I think happens in our modern society, where even with my family, I feel like we don't get in the outdoors nearly enough because we have so many activities. Um, you know, and that's the irony of it, as opposed to, you know, when you just kind of go out there and, you know, just enjoy as opposed to actually trying to do. And I, and I think that, you know, you, you can find it anywhere. You know, I, I feel that even in an urban area, that, you know, kids, you know, just to be able to spend time in parks and obviously parks are going through a metamorphosis now where cities are being a lot smarter, you know, with that interaction in the urban areas and, and what you can create so that people are connected with nature, you know, more so when they're in those parks. You know, I think it just, it just, makes for a better human being and a better existence and, and, um, you know, shows young people that this is something that they can go to, uh, to help with stresses or, or whatever it is they're facing. And, um, and I think it's just important that we open those doors. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree more with that. I really believe in it. I think that connecting with nature and building a relationship with it, you know, knowing that you're a part of that and what your place is on this planet because of that experience. I think that that's just critical. It's critical to me. It's critical to what it is to be human. And uh, I think it's also critical to understand what this planet is, you know, and what our interaction needs to be with it. Right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your company here, Onsite Public Affairs. So through this company, you get to do a lot of things to help people to interact with nature and to help yep. communities better present nature to the people. Um, what is on-site public affairs? Well, so we're a public affairs firm, which is, you know, sometimes, you know, people in the public affairs world, you know, certainly understand it. But outside of that, I, I think the best way to explain it is um, it's a, it's a, it's a PR firm, uh, but around public policy. Um, so instead of necessarily selling a product, you know, we're not, you know, we're not trying to, do public relations for, you know, Wells Fargo when, you know, when they mess up or, or something around a, you know, a product like Coca-Cola, you know, it's more around ideas. Um, so it's the, and it's also the, the interchange of, of where government and companies and nonprofits and, and individual people, uh, you know, work so that if you're trying to change a public policy or push a public policy, you would hire us to help you get that done. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. 
The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new Flame at 180TAC.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. Enjoy something wild next winter. Enjoy a dog sledding vacation with Wintergreen Dog Sled Lodge in the beautiful Boundary Waters Wilderness near Ellie, Minnesota. For over 30 years, Wintergreen has provided lodge-to-lodge dog sled vacation packages and dog sled camping adventures for people of all ages. No experience needed. Warm clothing and boots are provided. Mush your own team of Wintergreen's handsome and friendly Eskimo dogs on scenic Northwoods trails, accompanied by Wintergreen's expert guides. You'll be in good hands with Wintergreen. National Geographic has rated it best in the business. Visit dogsledding.com for details. You know, I'm looking at your website here, and uh, you list a lot of the different areas in which you can help. You know, there's political consulting, governmental affairs, public relations, branding, graphic design, business development, market and political research, and thrown right in the middle of that is craft beer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I think, I, yeah, I saw mountain biking down here. So I, I kind of like the, the fun that you introduced there. Tell us about that. Well, I think we're, you know, we're all very proud of, uh, of Colorado and, and, you know, we, we live here for a reason because of everything that it provides. And, and those are the things, I mean, we're, we're here, um, you know, we don't live to work, we work to live and, um, you know, we want to find value in the work we do and we want the work that we do to be important and to, to give back to our community. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, we also, you know, we, we want to live life. And, um, and so I think that's why both from the perspective of wherever we can, we want to try to incorporate, you know, mountain biking in our work, climbing in our work. And obviously the craft beer culture in Colorado is huge. And, and, um, I'm probably the, I'm a little bit more into the, um, uh, the, the, the whiskeys of Colorado than the beers of Colorado. Uh, but, but my business partners, Ben and Curtis, you know, they're definitely the connoisseurs of the beers. So, um, you know, so that's, that's part of that. Oh, that's fun. And on site, even the name of your company, that's a reference to climbing too. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that's, you know, for me personally, um, there, there's all sorts of different ways to approach climbing. Um, you know, and, and everybody can find a different value in it. Uh, but on-siting uh, a route is what's most important for me. Um, you know, it's what I try to do, and, and it's 
it's kind of how it's my approach to work as well. You know, it's you, you want to study a problem. A lot of times in the political world, you know, we don't necessarily have a second chance. You know, you got to you got you got one campaign, you got to run it, you got to run it right and you want to be successful. And so that's the, you know, the ethos of what you do for an onsite is, is kind of what we try to bring to the company. So onsiting a route means you look at it and you climb it first try, right? right. Successfully. Yeah, yeah, that's that's tough. That's hard to do in the business world or the political world or, or any sort of a dynamic like that. Right, right. Yeah, it is tough, but it's the ideal that we want to live up to. You know, doesn't doesn't mean we, it doesn't mean we bat a thousand for sure. But um, but again, I think uh, you know because with a lot of these political campaigns, you know you you know this is the one shot to get this done because you've only got a limited amount of resources. You know, you're bringing a, a, you know maybe because the the timing, uh, the people are coming together around something. You know, you you've got to you got to get it right. You know, I'm looking through some of your previous clients here. And uh, you have some big names in here, you know, Hickenlooper, Perlmutter, Salazar, Udall. I mean, these are names that people know. Mm -hmm. So what have you done for these campaigns? Well, on different ones, uh, you know, slightly different things. But with um, with Mark Udall, um, uh, I was Mark Udall's campaign manager. This was before we started the company. Um, and then one of my business partners, he was the, the deputy in charge of communications. That was Ben Davis. And so we ran Mark Udall's first uh, U.S. Senate campaign and then you know, continued to work with him um, uh, off and on, you know, during his time in the Senate. Uh, we also ran Hickenlooper's uh, first gubernatorial campaign. Um, and then when um, when in the 2014 cycle, we were still involved with Hickenlooper's campaign, but we didn't, we weren't involved with Udall's because it was just too challenging to do two statewide candidates. And especially, you know, there can be conflicts when, when two people are running, you know, at the same time, and we just didn't want to have to, you know, to run into those conflicts. Um, and, um, you know, and then for instance, with Ed Perlmutter, we uh, had done his um, uh, uh, email work, you know, drafted his emails, some videos for him, you know, just, just made, you know, essentially in the social media realm for him was the work that we did. So if somebody um, wants to get help with a campaign or getting an organization going or, some sort of a, a project that they need to promote, right? How do they know that you guys are the right ones? What kind of projects would you like to engage with? Yeah, well, I mean, I think for us, um, you know, what, what's great about this work is that it's always changing. Um, you know, so these campaigns are short-lived. They're very intense uh, when they're going on, but then when they're over, uh, then you move on to another campaign, and that's, that's what's fun about them. So, you know, we'll take projects that are interesting, um, and, and we, you know, we wanted to have something that we think, you know, that matches our values of, of, you know, doing something good for the Colorado community. Um, but, but there's no doubt we do seek out things where we try to do things that are more specific to our interests. And so, you know, recently, and I you know, think, you know, he'd be a great guest for you to have in a future podcast would, would be my business partner, Ben Davis and, and the Golden Giddy Up Bike Race. And, you know, just kind of learn the story behind that and, and, you know, how that came about, because that's, again, back to what we've been talking about throughout is, you know, being able to put something on like that for the community and have the benefit go to the trails. Um, it's quintessentially what we're about. Um, and so similarly, we do work with Great Outdoors Colorado. 
Um, you know, those are, those are the things that we find the most rewarding, um, where, you know, you, you're doing something that's really going to have a very positive impact in people's lives. Um, some of the clients we work for, you know, they're, they're good clients. You know, Google is one of our clients and, and we do some good strategic communications work for them. Um, you know, and, and, you know, certainly enjoy doing work for them. Um, but the, but the ones that we seek out are the ones where, it, it really directly has a positive impact on, on people at a local level. You know, I'm going to read off a few on your website just because I think it'll provide some, some context for what you're saying here. Colorado Petals Foundation, River Outfitters, Connect for Health Colorado, Conservation Colorado, Earth Justice, the Golden Giddy Up, right? Jeffco mm-hmm. Outdoors Foundation, Pedal the Plains, Ride the Rockies, Western Conservation Foundation. So you're really connected with uh, getting people into the outdoors to enjoy adventure sports. Yeah, no, absolutely. Wow, that's cool and, stuff. And protecting. I think you know a lot of those are also about protecting. Um, you know, I think that's what's you know the project that we did with GoCo was um, was specific to their new Inspire initiative which was specific about getting kids uh, connected and into the outdoors. Uh, but we also were able to do uh, this large event, this outdoor summit for them that we um, managed and, and put on. And it was also to, to showcase the, the things that GOKO has done over its 20-plus years of protecting lands and, um, and providing uh, resources to connect people to those lands. So you know, the, the protection is important to us, too. Well, I think that when people connect with nature and, and begin to have that relationship that we discussed earlier, then that gives them that intrinsic motivation to want to do something to make sure that it's there for the next generation and that we don't just take advantage of the, the beautiful gift that we've been given. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, what kind of parting thoughts would you like to give for our listeners about climbing, about taking care of the environment, about campaigns for taking care of the outdoors? What would you like to leave us with? In any of these pursuits, you know, to do it well and follow what you're passionate about, and and that's going to bring about the the greatest return, you know, for happiness. And you know, I, I certainly feel lucky that you know I work in a business that allows me to make a living off of of doing things that both are rewarding for me, but also are are helpful to people. And um, and then you know, I just think it's important that. Yeah, we all should try to strive for that. You know, it comes in different stripes, you know, depending on what's important to each individual. But I feel very fortunate to uh, have the experiences and to take in the path that I took and and hope others can as well. You know, I I have to ask you to unpack that a little bit because I know we have thousands of listeners out there who just heard, do your passion. It's the key to happiness. And people go, oh, yeah, yeah. How? What do I do? Yeah, well, I think that's, you know, it's going to depend on each individual, but I think it is, you know, it is what is unique about the world that we live in now, um, that probably more than ever, you know, I was, I, 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 there was something that I saw last week when, gosh, I wish I remember exactly what it was, what the company was, but I was so impressed about it because, so my mom was a school teacher, she's a, a, a counselor, and, and then she also did some real estate on the side, um, and, uh, but but her passion was sewing. Uh, she was an amazing seamstress. She made you know hell. She 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 worked with me on my first chalk bag. Um, mm-hmm. You know when I was you know back in the day when I was climbing in my sneakers. Um, you know she helped me sew my first chalk bag, and um, and 
you know, and, and I, I see so many of these young people today who have the opportunity where they can take a talent that they have and connect with a textile mill, you know, halfway around the world to then produce something that they design and then have it, you know, shipped here almost instantaneously and delivered to a customer that they just, you know, specifically designed something for. And I just thought, you know, if that had been around 50 years ago, you know, 60 years ago for my mom, you know, what a, what a great opportunity that would have been for her. And I think those, those opportunities exist because of the technology that we have. Um, You know, the, the world is now flat as they say. And, um, and I think that you can, you can look at what, what do I enjoy doing most? And, and I think probably for most people, you can figure out how to make a living out of that. And so, um, you know, that's, I, I think just, I just think we have opportunities like never before in the history of, um, of humankind to, to be able to actually pursue, um, passions. Oh, that's cool. And I think you're right. I, the internet itself has opened up so many doors. It's never been so easy to start a company and to market to a planet all at one time. Yeah, exactly. Well, hey, Mike, how can people get in touch with you? I know there are going to be people out there who say, I want to know more about on-site public <laughs> affairs. It sounds like this is a company I need to visit with. So how can they reach you? Yeah, well, my email address is mike at onsitepa for publicaffairs.com. And then uh, you can go to our website, onsitepublicaffairs.com or onsitepa.com. Either way, we'll direct you there. and Or you can go bike. Buffalo Creek, and hopefully I'll see you there or, uh, <laughs> or uh, up on Independence Pass uh, near Aspen uh, climbing. There you go. And by the way, site for all of this is spelled S-I-G-H, like the site with our eyes instead of the location site. So on-site public affairs. That's correct. Very cool. Well, Mike, thank you for sharing with us about climbing. I think that the information that you provided about sport climbing is about the best that we've ever had on the Adventure Sports Podcast. So I'm really glad to have captured that from you. We appreciate the information and the time that you've spent. Oh, thank you. And also about your on-site public affairs company. It's unique. It's really cool what you're doing. So kudos to you. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Uh, you bet. And for all of our listeners out there, as always, get out there and have some fun, and maybe that would be climbing. Give it a shot. You have heard all the hype around paleo, low-carb, organics, diet powders, and the lot. How does one sort out what really works? Good news. Gary Collins has done the homework for you. Regain and maintain your health and live that life of vitality. Learn more at primalpowermethod.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.